0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash This episode of The Hash is sponsored by PayPal. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network.
1: Hey, everyone. You are watching the Hash on Coindesk TV. You may also be listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We are so happy to be here with you today. I'm Jensen Asti. We got Adam B. Levine and Will Foxley. With us on a Thursday, and we're kicking it off with some more Binance news. Will, what do you got for us?
2: We cannot get away from the Binance or the Coinbase news. Mm -hmm. Just cannot get away from it. That's okay. We'll stick with it and we'll power through it. There's two US senators asking for the DOJ to investigate Binance in regards to information that is sent over to uh, different departments regarding its relationship between Binance US and Binance, the international agency. Senators Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts and Chris Van Hollen, also of Maryland, and alleged the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, alleged that the crypto exchange may have made false statements, including its affiliation with Binance U.S. Now, for those not in the know, Binance U.S. essentially is a firm that has licensed the trading engine of Binance and a few of its other things, such as like its image and brand. And uh, over the years, they've tried to be separate. There's always been questions around how separate they are. Uh, And over the last 18 months or so, there's been some new information about the relationship between these two entities that has caught the eye of many regulators, especially as Binance is now in the crosshairs of the SEC. I'm going to throw the story over to you. Yeah, I
3: mean, this is just the latest volley in kind of the fight over jurisdiction here, right? Like the challenge around cryptocurrency broadly is that it is not a national technology. It doesn't really understand borders. And so when you look at the institutions, especially the on-ramps and off-ramps, uh, you know, that are responsible for regulating this type of thing. Uh, sorry, uh, for, um, you know, like onboarding people into the ecosystem and then allowing them to kind of sell their tokens. The rules in the U.S. are very different than the rules elsewhere. And the way the U.S. kind of grabs jurisdiction is to say, hey, if you have a single U.S. client, then that means that we think that we have effectively as much right to regulate you as anybody else does and bring action against you. So the question here really has been, what is Binance? Is Binance an independent entity that has, you know, like the branding characteristics and a like tangential relationship to the overall, uh, to the overall larger Binance? Or is it kind of something more? The specifics around the kind of Warren's comments. Again, Warren notoriously (laughs) over the course of the last years has said that she's building an anti crypto army. So this isn't exactly a person who, you know, is like, Hey, I want to make sure that everybody is doing the right thing again. You have to remember that Warren came into the kind of uh, world of politics as an anti-banking crusader. And she has since not really acted like that in practice. And much of what she's done has not gone to support that. So at this point, I, I just remain incredibly skeptical about all of these things. This is all just playing politics, as far as I can tell. And honestly, we have so many big problems in the world today that it's just an irritation, I think, at this point. you know. Uh, but that's politics for you. Jen?
1: You know, Adam, I'm with you. I think that You know, every time there's a big headline in crypto, we hear Warren come out and make headlines on it. Most recently, it was about the fentanyl crisis. We covered that story on the show. Warren came out and said, you know, crypto is funding the fentanyl crisis, citing some of that research that we spoke about. I believe it was from um, Elliptic. This, both the senators mentioned in the story, um, issued a letter to Binance in March. I don't know if you both remember, there's so many letters that are issued to these exchanges from all different types of government officials. And in the letter, they said that Binance was a hotbed of illegal financial activity. Um, and so I think it's interesting that now we have the SEC suing Binance and both senators have come out again and issued yet another letter to look into what's going on. I think that, Adam, like you said, it's politics. The We're, we're going to keep seeing senators who support very, different things come out and say these things. But I don't know how... I don't know how serious we should take it. I feel like it's just politics and what's going to happen happens. And I don't have much else to say. (laughs) Will?
2: I'll tell you how serious it is. Quote unquote from the letter. This is a serious matter. They said (laughs) to Merrick Garland. So you really should put this at the top of your list, Jen. It's really (laughs) important to pay attention to this. No, so I think like the bigger thing to look at is like the escalating stairs to get to a bigger problem for these exchanges, right? It normally starts with like, you know, ask for some information or like a probe. We've always seen those headlines like the DOJ, the SEC, CFTC are probing these exchanges. And then you might get a Wells notice. We saw a Coinbase. And then a few months later, you actually get an outright lawsuit. And then from there, the bigger problems can arise, such as a DOJ investigation. So if you are actively trying to break US laws and trying to skirt things such as sanctions uh, and other financial activities, right? That's what they're going to look into. And that's really like The jugular for a lot of these exchanges, right? The SEC, the CFTC, the most they're really going to do is hit you with a very large fine, tell you to clean up your act, get all of your stuff in order, stop servicing US customers or delist certain products. But if the DOJ starts going after you, well, that's a question of crime typically or alleged crime, and they might go after you for other things. I mean, the SEC and the CFTC do have the powers to to enforce some of those things, but if the DOJ gets involved, it's a little bit more serious. And that's what we're seeing with FTX right now as well, right? So the C- SEC has an open case against FTX and St. bankman Breed for alleged misconduct, but so does the DOJ and a few other agencies. Adam, I want to throw it to you to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, again, all this comes back to, I think,
3: the, like the, the comments that we've seen from Gary Gensler recently, you know, as all of these various actions have been brought, I think, kind of say the quiet part out loud, which is that, As far as the U.S. is concerned, there's no reason for any type of ownership system to exist outside of one that is regulated by the U.S. government and outside of a monetary system, frankly, that is run by the U.S. government. As Gensler recently said, the U.S. already has a digital currency. It's called the dollar. Why would we need anything else? Well, the answer to that question, actually, if you play it out, is pretty revealing, which is that it would be useful to have a currency that didn't have supply dynamics controlled by people who perpetually devalue the currency. As a way to secretly tax people without them being able to really see it and just make them feel like, you know, essentially gaslight them to make them feel like it is their problem that prices are rising. When in reality, it is a purely monetary phenomenon. This has been understood for many, many years. Uh, so it's not like it's a new thing. It's just something that we're not educated on and it's a convenient way for them to accomplish the thing that they want anyway. So, They can dress it up however they want. And they do dress it up in lots of different ways, whether we're talking about, oh, it's about fentanyl or, oh, it's about the Chinese or, oh, it's about anything else. Again, these most recent things are just kind of the latest of that. Really, it's that none of these systems can withstand a truly competitive system. They can't uh, withstand competition because they're not good products. And so they need a monopoly. And the way that they do that isn't to say, hey, we need a monopoly because our product is lousy. They do it by trying to cast dispersions on everything else by taking decentralized systems that are quite literally permissionless, which means they can be used for good and for bad, painting them with whatever the worst possible use that they can find is, and then trying to pretend like that represents the entire system. When in reality, all they're doing is protecting their own interests and very much working against the interests of the people. So it continues to be this really, really unfortunate, highly political dynamic that rejects reality for the version of what people who are in charge would like reality to be. And really are willing to give us no option besides that. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk, Jen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I will say on the other side of that argument, if crimes were actually committed, you know, 100%. Biden's being accused of, of some pretty harsh things, then yes, I the DOJ perhaps should should look into that. But we'll leave that there and move on to something a little bit lighter. you guys like that? Let's mm-hmm. let's go off and talk about decentralized social media. So Aave's decentralized social media platform Lens Protocol raised a $15 million funding round recently from a group of high-profile investors, including Uniswap CEO Hayden Adams, OpenSea co-founder Alex Atala, and Polygon co-founder Sandeep Nailwal. Will, what do you think? I feel like we're seeing bigger and bigger raises creeping back into the Web3 social media kind of NFT realm. We saw it cool off a little bit, but they seem to be ramping back up. What do you make of this?
2: Yeah, it's all speculation, right? Cause I don't, I don't have any hard numbers in front of us, but we do do a good job of like covering these rounds on the show. So I, I agree with you. I think like there was a pause over the last year, last 12 months as teams and VC firms were kind of figuring out where things were flowing, where money was going. And they paused definitely during like November, during the low lows, FTX and all that. But I think it's starting to pop back up. I want to throw a question back to you, Jen, and sort of talk about like these products. It's funny how we see bigger checks for some of these social media ideas. But to date, there hasn't really been an innovative Web3 social media idea that has generated revenue. They're often sort of created, every sort of camp has their own version of it, and then it just kind of exists for a while, and then it dies. And arguably, the only one that's really done well is Telegram. And they tried to launch their own blockchain thing later, and it exists. It's not technically with the project itself. They uh, basically got that suit out of existence with the SEC. But there is like a Version of it where you can use TON, the TON token, on top of it. That's the best I can think of for a Web3 social media idea. What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I don't know if revenue is what all of these decentralized social platforms are trying to solve for right now. I think the bigger problem for them is users. I don't think anyone has figured out the Web3 social platform revenue issue. I don't know if tokens are the right answer, especially given what's happening in the regulatory atmosphere, especially here in the US. I think everyone is trying to figure out how do we get users from Facebook, from Twitter to come over, actually understand the CVP here, understand what owning your own data, what owning your own creations actually means. And then we'll figure out the revenue piece. I don't, I don't know if that's top of mind, especially when I look at the investors who have taken part in this round. I don't think that these are the types of investors that would be pushing for revenue at this stage in the game, I think they would be pushing for more innovation on how we get users, how we get people using it. Adam, what do you think?
3: Yeah, social media is all about eyeballs. And the thing that we've seen consistently, and again, like this type of platform has been around for a long time. In the world of Bitcoin, these were typically thought of as free speech platforms. And they have an audience, they have a constituency that they address. It's just not everybody. And it's not even most people, right? It tends to be people who are dissatisfied with the existing social media landscape, and the problem there is that that's actually a much smaller proportion of people once you get down to it. A lot of people will sort of signal that they're unhappy or vocally you know, talk about how they're unhappy. But at the end of the day, they wind up staying on these platforms, whether you're talking about Twitter or Facebook, right? So like, that's the underlying problem is it's really hard to build a network effect around social media. And social media is one of those things where to the extent that you don't have a network effect, there's literally no reason to use your product outside of ideological people. And the more ideological people you have on your product early on the more it pushes the community development in that direction, which then makes it really, really hard to get mass adoption. We've uh, seen like pro- uh, products like um, Mines uh, from back in the day. That was, I think, one of, kind of the more successful ones that abstracted more of the complexity around this. But I think that complexity is the key word here. When you're talking about social media and you're talking about onboarding very large numbers of people, that's just really hard to do when you're talking about, hey, everybody needs a wallet, everybody needs to understand at least some fundamentals. And the more you abstract that, the less that the whole system kind of makes sense. So I firmly believe that there's a thing here, like there's a, there's a foundational technology to be had, but so far again, it's anybody's game when it's gonna be, I have yet to see any winners. And I don't think $15 million moves the needle on, on getting
2: this one there, I gotta tell you.
1: <laughs> Something though.
2: <laughs> well, that's kind of my, my whole question, right? Is like people are giving checks for these funding rounds because they expect money back in the future at some point. They're not doing this altruistically, right? Like, There are conditions for all these checks to be written. And uh, many angel checks do have the assumption that it's going to zero at some point. That is the nature of writing angel checks. But at some point, you have to think that a lot of these checks are expecting money. And if you can't get users, let alone revenue, I don't really know where this goes. And a lot of these Web3 ideas kind of just sputter off. It's so hard to build network effects. I mean, that's sort of a meme at this point. All these different companies that do do well is because they have a network effect and they last. These Web3 ideas, like the only ones that really do have a network effect, do something like a MetaMask where it's just built into Chrome, it's a browser, you have it. But it's just for trading tokens. It's not really for talking to your friends. The only ones that have really done well are maybe like the Bitcoin Talk Forum, which decidedly not really a Web3 thing. And then maybe some spin-offs like Noster that are starting to catch up a little bit. But even those are still very, very small. So from a VC perspective, I'd be interested to hearing the pitch on why it's worth investing in these things when they're so tiny and that it doesn't seem to be any sort of breakaway speed for them. Jen, I'll give it to you.
1: Yeah, I want to hear Adam's thoughts. So I'll make it super quick. You know, every time we talk about a race, we talk about the narrative, what people are talking about in the media. And just weeks ago, which I know probably the race happened before weeks ago, um, there was a lot of talk about Twitter um, giving in to government requests for takedown of content. And that, that discussion opened up the doors again. For this whole decentralized social idea, and so I wonder if there's going to be, you know, a catalyst moment sometime in the future which makes things click for large groups of people at a time that will bring the users to the platform. Um, Adam, I saw your hand go up, so I'll kick it off to you. But what do you think? Do you think there's going to be this like catalyzing event?
3: I mean, I think that that's always the hope for these types of projects. Uh, you know, to the kind of earlier point about the money, right? Like fifteen million dollars is a lot of money in real life, but in the world of startups, it's not that much money. In the world of VC, it's not that much money. Again. Like there are firms out there, you know, where it's like the minimum check that they'll, they'll put into something before they consider it investable is like 25 to $50 million. So again, like it's just important to keep this in perspective. It is a lot of money, but for a venture like this and with the challenges that it has to overcome to actually become successful. Again, I think a lot of these things wind up getting investments because they're tied directly to the DeFi ecosystem. And there's just a cohort of investors who has the thesis that DeFi is the future and will be the backing of the future. And that may be true, but I think to the average person today, it's a really, really hard sell.
0: attention crypto holders moving crypto is seamless and secure with paypal with support for bitcoin eth and more you can buy sell hold send and check out with crypto at millions of shops online not to mention paypal now supports the ability to send to and from external wallets and charges you nothing when transferring between paypal and venmo crypto wallets whether you're exploring the world of web 3 or hodling on for another day paypal is the convenient and simple way to convert dollars into crypto paypal has your back they work to protect your financial info and give you confidence every step of your crypto journey. Now's the time to make your crypto move. Get started today at paypal.com crypto. Terms and conditions apply.
3: In the battle for who gets to regulate cryptocurrency and determine what those rules would be, a rift has emerged between the G7, which is the group of seven Western nations, and the G20, which is a larger grouping that includes some developing economies. Specifically on the topic of stablecoins, the G7 wants to allow the use of the asset class with what are likely to be some heavy controls, including how big they can get. While the G20 would prefer that they effectively not exist, at least in legal form. The move here actually and the disagreement actually makes a lot of sense. Essentially, every nation is concerned about privately issued stablecoins effectively stealing market share from their local currency monopolies. But the differences are on what would be the most effective way to protect their respective interests. The G7 is notably made up of nations with relatively strong rule of law and powerful regulatory bodies, so flexing those muscles is a viable path. In many developing nations, however, those institutions aren't as strong, and so they'd prefer that the tools simply be banned to avoid the possibility of even some legal capital flight. It is the latest volley in the long war of disruption being waged on these new technologies, and it's a reminder that there's effectively no international consensus on the topic, even at the highest levels of government.
2: Well, what do you think about this? Am I overselling it? No, I think you're spot on. This is a really interesting piece. And it's probably something that's going to continue, especially as we get into countries that are not in the G7, not in the G20, but just in the developing countries worldwide, right? Like countries that are not really going to have a uh, toehold on the national stage, countries people aren't really talking about, especially when it comes to developing countries. Why? Because a higher percentage of their international transactions are going to be composed of stable coins over the next 10, 20 years. That's because, well, percentages, right? In the US, we have a GDP of like about 14 plus trillion dollars. So a market cap for stable coins of around 100 to 200 billion dollars isn't that big. Trading volumes for it is sizable, but not compared to some of the other capital markets out there. But if you look to a smaller country, the market cap for some of these stable coins is going to be larger than their GDP. And if you're going to be actively using these stable coins for moving money in and out of the country, well, that sort of sidesteps the government, which is trying to get a little bit of that tax every single time those coins or currencies move around. And then that's not even touching the monetary policy side of this, right? So a country is going to have its own central bank, or it's going to work with consortium of different countries have its own issued currency. And if these stable coins come in and start basically allowing for the movement of capital all over the place, over borders, well, then these monetary policy regimes just fall apart. You can't start indu- inducing... inflation in order to have like whatever your monetary policy to be. Everyone is just operating on dollars that really don't land anywhere in your country. They're just on people's smartphones moving in and out of the country for goods and services. So it is a big deal for these smaller countries where a stable coin could be a sizable percentage of like the flows of capital in and out of the country. I think for larger countries, this isn't going to be as big of a concern. They're more concerned about maybe like illicit financial activity. And so that's where they'll clamp down on it. And that's probably where the disagreement will be on. Uh, A lot of these larger countries, they're not concerned about contagion from stablecoins as of now, and they probably won't be for quite a while. Uh, Maybe in 10, 20 years, these stablecoin markets do get that big. But even then, they'll have plenty of time to be able to set these things up correctly. So there is going to be two different purposes or motivations for these different country types to work on legislation around this. And I think that I know who's going to get the upper hand here. And I assume it would probably be the G7 countries, Jen.
1: Yeah, so the G20 is being led by India right now, right? And the goal was to get this global regulatory framework. And everyone was so optimistic about it. And who thought that there would be a sticking point between all of these countries trying to work together with all different goals for very different economies? Stablecoins. I think it's so sad to think about when we're talking about developing nations, right, these are nations who are engaging with remittances, who are doing more cross-border transactions. Stablecoins really offer a solution to so many sticking points for the end user there. And so it is kind of sad to hear that this is a sticking point. This is something that possibly people are not going to be able to use, and they're going to continue to experience these pain points and issues that come with remittances. Adam, I have a question for you, though. If we look at the G20, there are um, a few countries in the G20 nations who have ongoing stable uh, CBDC coin uh, pilots right now. Do you think this has something to do with uh, stable coins being such a sticking point?
3: Yeah, I think that if you draw back the lens on this, then the, the motivations here become pretty obvious, which is that effectively every nation wants their local currency to be a roach motel where liquidity comes in and it never leaves and they don't have to worry about it leaving and there's no possibility for it to leave. So when India is talking about this type of thing, when these nations are talking about this type of thing, they're concerned about the US dollar because the US dollar in the current paradigm represents a cleaner, dirty shirt, so to speak. Uh, you know, in, in kind of the pool of bad options, it's the least worst option right now. So if you're in India or you're, uh, you know, really many other places, again, even the UK right now has about 9% inflation last time I checked by official metrics, which means in practice, it's probably actually a decent bit higher. So that's the challenge is that. When, you're, when your country is going through high levels of inflation, people would rather that their money not devalue. And so they will buy things that will let them not devalue the, that currency, right, uh, to not lose that purchasing power. That can, in kind of worst-case scenarios, be, hey, I'm literally going to just go buy a bunch of stuff, like buy a bunch of electric appliances, because at least those have utility. But the better option for people in those situations is to buy uh, is to you know trade their currency for a currency that is less bad effectively. Right now, that's the US dollar. So in the context of these discussions, we're talking about stable coins primarily based on the US dollar and to a lesser extent based on the euro. The dynamic is exactly the same here in the US. The US dollar isn't doing so hot either. Again, lost 99, 97% of its value over the last 100 years. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's a lot. And again, just over the last 10 years, the cost of things, again, the cost of buying a hamburger has gone up just just ridiculous amounts. And that is something that's very noticeable. And that is the big concern, I think, about any sort of alternative. So when you look at something like Bitcoin that has characteristics of a currency, but it doesn't have the ability for a government to be like, hey, this is a roach motel. We're going to make it worse for you and you have no other options. That's where this kind of comes down to. So it's, it's kind of turtles all the way down on this type of story, right? It's that everybody is afraid of there being a better option, which then allows people to escape the thing that they want to do due to the money, <laughs> and then uh, further kind of concentrates that into the country. So, not surprising at all, and I don't think that we'll see any changes uh, from this type of approach. But ultimately, that's the dynamic. Back to you, Jim.
1: I think it's Will's turn. Going to it's talk my about turn, guys. Mining the most exciting topic of the day.
2: <sighs> wow, rude. Okay, we have <laughs> two minutes left to talk about Bitcoin mining. We have a nice piece on CoinDesk talking about the future of Bitcoin mining with the halving coming up in about a year from now. The halving is a programmatic reduction of the amount of rewards in a Bitcoin block. It'll be currently basically in April, reduce the Bitcoin rewards in a block from 6.25 Bitcoin per block down to 3.125 or thereabouts. What does this really mean for Bitcoin miners? Well, there's going to be less incentive to mine Bitcoin because there'll be less Bitcoin in each block. You also better hope that the price of Bitcoin goes up over the next few months, because otherwise, a lot of these miners will not be able to mine profitably. Adam, the halving is always a big story every four years. It's seen as a catalyst for bull markets. Any different expectations going into this one? I think that it is a big narrative. I think it's more important
3: as a narrative than it is in really most other contexts. Um, And, you know, I mean, like the whole thing about markets is that, They look into the future they try to predict what's going to happen and so they look at patterns in the past and those can then reinforce what happens in the future is it correct like is it actually is there actually a dynamic there outside of market narrative well the supply is going down as far as the kind of supply expansion and the rate of the expansion so if bitcoin is doing the thing that people hope it is then this does make sense but i don't think that we know that yet and i also don't really think that it's possible at this point to tell Whether it's narrative driving price or whether it's supply dynamics driving price, which then drives narrative. And ultimately that is the question because either this trend continues as we've seen over the last several cycles, which would mean higher prices basically, uh, in the, in the aftermath really of the event, uh, as people sort of bid up the price in advance and then nothing happens when it actually, you know, when the, when the actual event happens, but then the supply dynamic, uh, and narrative continue to kind of tick forward. That's really powered the last couple of cycles that we have. So. Personally, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I think that history would suggest that that narrative will play out again. Ultimately, we'll see.
2: Jen?
1: Will, I have a question for you, and you have to answer it really fast because the show is about to end. Do miners actually care about the having or the having?
2: It's the most important thing in Bitcoin mining.
1: So you do. You think about it and you plan for it.
2: I wake up every day thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> no, it is very important. You have to be thinking about prices, electricity, prices of machines, prices of Bitcoin. It's all a future looking industry. If you don't do that, then you'll be out of business before you can even start your own business.
1: Learn something new every day. Come back to The Hash. You might learn something tomorrow. I'm Jensen Assey with Adam V. Levine and Will Foxley here with us today. We'll be back same time, same place tomorrow.
0: Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network.